0: Uh, hey, everybody. Welcome to the Crafting an Idea panel. This panel is being recorded uh, for the dollarbend.net. Uh, if you missed any of the panels this weekend, uh, we were recording all of them, so feel free to check them out. If you'd like to share that information uh, with other people, please do so. Um, in the interest of the people who might be listening audibly to this and not here, uh, if we'll go down the line and each introduce yourselves so that the audio audience will know your voices. Oh, okay. Hi, I'm uh, Chris
1: Schweitzer. I write and draw the Krogan Adventure Series, which is a uh, a graphic novel series uh, that is historical fiction, uh, each book being a different member of one family line at different points throughout history, so it gives me a chance to try different genres, different time periods, uh, while still being under the umbrella of uh, one framework. Uh, I also do a kids' horror mystery series called The Creeps, um, which uh starts the first book comes out in august
2: um i'm david weber uh i do science fiction um i guess uh most people would associate me with the honor harrington books i think there are 19 novels and 6 anthologies now um but uh i also have people threatening me that i have to pick, pick a series and finish it <laughs> um, i'm not allowed to start a new one until i do you know um but um I sold the first novel in uh, 1989. Um, and I think as of last count, I have 58. I I think that deserves the <laughs>
3: uh, I'm Van Jensen. Um, let's see. I start out writing uh, the Pinocchio Vampire Slayer series of graphic novels. Um, then... Uh, Started writing Green Lantern Corps for DC Comics. Uh, also currently co-write The Flash. Uh, more stuff with DC coming. of a new uh, series from Dark Horse called Two Dead that's on the way. Uh, and then I have a, uh, a graphic novel called The Leg that's about a uh, the disembodied leg of Mexican President Santa Anna adventuring through Mexico in the 1930s.
2: Okay,
1: that that one's a true story.
2: I think it, and it is really good. Uh, I'm guessing that Two dead" has to be spelled T O O. Actually,
3: no, T W O. Oh, okay. I, know. I was just you know, playing it straight. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> when when Adam and I were discussing this uh, panel, one of the things that I that I was really interested in, as you just listened to them, is they are all extremely creative and very different things. Like each of them are representing a wide uh, birth of creativity and writing and. You know, from following, from knowing Chris and also following him on Twitter, I know he has about a million ideas a day for things that he would like to have the time to do but doesn't. And from listening to each of them just do their introductions, obviously they have a wide berth of creativity. And since we're talking about, since we're going to at least start talking about ideas, <laughs> how do you know that an idea is actually worth the time it takes? To flesh it out, as opposed to, oh, that's a good idea that I'm never going to do anything with. Like, like, how do you? What's what's the difference between just that's a good idea and that's an idea I can do a graphic novel or a book about? You
1: just ask the right question. Like a lot of people (laughs) have a, where do you get your ideas? And the thing is, we all have ideas all the time, and that's not the tricky part. The tricky part is exactly what you said, narrowing it, narrowing it down, and figuring out which. Which kernel of an idea can can yield the fruit of a full story?
2: I've never, I've never run that kind of of an analysis um, before. I started with something, um, but I think there is probably some subliminal of that uh, going on. Um, I did um, uh, a trilogy which is supposed to eventually go to five books. Um, And the whole thing started because I was sitting on my front steps one night looking up at this big full moon, and I said, what if we didn't have a moon at all? What if it was actually a giant camouflaged alien starship? Ooh, shiny. And I was off to the races with it. Um, And my problem definitely is that I am going to run out of time Way before I run out of stories I want to tell. Um.
3: Yeah, I, I, it is a really good question. I've kind of been sitting here pondering it as they've answered. Um, I think, for one, uh, as Chris said, like ideas are really cheap, um, yeah. literally worthless. Uh, so it, it's nothing until it actually becomes something. But um, I, I think I really focus on. Um, understanding storytelling and sort of how stories work so um the creative process for me is there's a lot of almost like engineering that goes into it i mean i think there's there definitely is something of like story structure like what makes a good story what are Mm -hmm. the components that make good stories and there are different types of stories but um I, i think that what happens is sort of a mixture of uh, an idea either an idea hits you that you realize oh there's you know this fits into you know archetypes really well or this is something that that is going to you know it, it all the bones are there for it to be built into something or it just it's cool enough or weird enough that you figure out you want to put the work into you know, turning it into something that's structured as a story, and the, so for yeah. like the leg, that's what that was like. the leg was like this stupid thing that had no story to it other than like this it's too much to go into, but this little bit of tragedy that it was like there's something there, and it's a world that I want to write about, so I will take the time to figure it out mm-hmm. just because I want to write about
2: it right, right.
3: But the that that wanting to write about it is is such a big factor too like i'll I'll have
1: uh two. I don't I don't really sit down and, and you know put a put a marker board up and weigh the pros and cons, um, but I but there are two criteria that sort of I think are kind of universal for me with any project that I I wish to undertake. And the first one is um, how much do I want to do it? I might have an idea that I think is a really good idea, and it may be be a great idea and possibly commercially successful idea or whatever it might be. But I can also know from my own experience what projects will be able to sustain me creatively mm-hmm. um, working through them and thinking, okay, well, I can devote four months of my life to this or eight months of my life to this or whatever it might be and work on nothing but that. Uh, is that going to be something that I'm, uh, I feel the joy of, of work when I'm, when I'm undertaking this thing? Or is it going to be a sludge uphill? And doing a project that you don't like that should take four months inevitably takes eight months. Yeah. You hate it. The,
2: the, the, the best idea in the world, okay, <laughs> is, is a starting point for, for the story, and that's all that it is, okay? Um, you have to build the story from there. Um, and I tell people who want to write, I say, look, don't try and write what you think is going to sell. Write the kind of story that you like to read. Write the kind it's, its it's what you were talking about. Because first of all, if it's what you enjoy, you'll do a better job with it than if you're just trying to connect the dots for somebody else to make a sale. Secondly, none of us are so unique that there's not an audience out there, that there isn't an audience out there who likes the same kind of stories we like. So there is an audience. And in in my branch of of publishing, in in novels and, and anthologies, one of the things that has to be, it's probably true for you guys too, publishers exist by publishing, and they therefore have a vested interest in helping you succeed if what you do is succeedable. I just made that word up. Yeah. Good <laughs> okay. I work with words. That's, you know. your job. That's my job. You know, uh, but but there's this view that there's some sort of an adversarial process for submissions to to author to to publishers and what, and there really isn't. What there is is publishers who have seen all the mistakes you can possibly make made by somebody else and that pops red flags if they see something that seems to them to be going in that same direction. But they want they want to find people who have stories to tell and who have the skills and the energy level to tell them.
1: Yeah, a lot of the what what seems like the insurmountable logistical things, you know, um needing to find an agent or how submission process works or things like that. That's not meant, I think a lot of people see that as a gatekeeping type of deal, and that's not why it exists. It exists because most publishing houses are understaffed for the amount of uh, content that they, that they put out, and those, those are put into place so that they can best handle the amount of stuff coming in uh, to the point that they can give everything their full attention.
2: Mm-hmm. I was never agented until Evergreen Studios optioned the Honorverse. I've never been represented by an agent. I've sold my first book with an over the transom submission. Um, And it can be done. Um, It is not the easiest way to do it. And in
1: comics, you almost never need it unless you're working with one of the, like, the, the imprints of one of the big publishing houses. Um, like First, Second is an imprint of Macmillan. Uh, Pantheon is an imprint of Random House. But aside from that, almost everybody, uh, even if they don't take unsolicited submissions, you can meet them at a convention. You mm-hmm. can talk to them. You can send them your work um, and get invited to, to send in a, a pitch for your project.
2: It works that way with, um, with um, book, book publishing, too. Um, one of the huge advantages of, of cons like this is that it's an opportunity to meet the people who produce the content, and if you want to be one of the people who produces the content, that connection with them uh, can be very. But please, 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 please don't walk up to them and say, "I've written a book," you know. That <laughs> not, not right <laughs> off, okay? Ease your way. In. <laughs> it sounds. Sa- it sounds
0: like um, when you're deciding what it is you're going to tackle as a project, that it's kind of a mixture of does it have structure that you think you can see through, and also does it pull at you at something that you want to complete? Yeah.
1: And, uh, and also, you know, I mean, we, we talk about only not doing something uh, because you think it's going to sell if you don't want to do it, but I do think that that is, uh, at, at least for me, because, you know, I only have so much time per year, and there's only so many projects that I can undertake um, commercial viability is a mm-hmm. concern um, when, I, when I'm undertaking a project. Um, I, I do only consider projects that I know I'm going to want to do. Um, but when it comes to those projects, I, I do think, is this going to be worth the time invested? If I'm just doing a short piece or something, yeah. um, like a comics essay or a, uh, a drawing or something along those lines, then then those considerations don't matter as much. Mm. And whether or not anybody ever pays me for them, I could care less because it's something that I really want to do. But once it gets into the point where I'm spending more than a week on a project um, or more than a month on a project, then uh, I have to start thinking, is this something that's going to cut into income that could be achieved doing a different project because the, yeah. I, I have to support my family. Um, yeah. And if I pick a project that isn't, has no sales viability that no one's going to be willing to publish, then that that definitely hurts both my uh, household, but also uh, to some degree my uh, artistic or publishing reputation um, with the people that I'm working but also, with.
2: But it also damages your fan base. Yeah. Because yeah. they want... Well, and, and I didn't mean that you should not consider whether or not it was economically viable. What no, I meant yeah, is yeah. if the stories that you want to tell don't have vampires that glitter in the sunlight in them, then don't write those stories. Write the ones that you do like yeah. that are viable.
1: And you're right. People are going, there's going to be an uh, an audience for whatever type of genre um, that you want to do. Now, the more specific and, and deviating from, I, I guess, uh, either accepted structural or social more is the 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 smaller that audience is going to be yeah. but in terms of subject matter if you write a riveting story about you know uh yeah legal associates then if if you write it well people will like it you know that's how john grisham got his superstar mm-hmm. start you know you wouldn't think that that yeah going through paperwork and realizing there's something bad is going to be a new york times bestseller it, and, consistently. David yes. David
2: Balducci. Yeah. Yeah.
0: As you um as you're as you're weighing those sort of options what do you use as sort of your sounding board? Um do you is it all internal? Is it like you said like you have families to consider, um writing partners, publishers, you know, what what sort of pulls at you is like well, I, I kind of think this is a good idea but Bob doesn't. Like Van, what do you when when you think of I'm considering this, what other voices besides your own are the ones that you listen to as to what kind of projects you do or don't want to do?
3: My wife. <laughs> yeah, <just laughs> I,
2: I talk it over with. I talk it over with Skippy. <laughs> it works best in front of a mirror. I go, oh, yeah, <laughs> see, that's,
0: I, I know. You know, a lot of people. I assume that it is just a very sort of this is what I want, and I think it's viable, and then. You know, I'm sure some people asked her her Facebook page yeah. if they yeah. think that this is but, something well, they would buy. I'm being a
3: little facetious. I mean, my wife's a lot smarter than I am. I mean, she's uh, worked on Supreme Court cases an attorney, so they very much value her opinion. Um, but I also, I mean, I have a literary agent, so obviously I talk to him about things. But then I also, like, the flip side of it is... Um, and, Maybe I'm just kind of hard-headed, but I think um, even when people tell you that they don't see it, like that doesn't necessarily mean that the idea isn't there. It just means that you need to rework it and keep, keep refining it. Or
0: like that maybe you, they can't see the the whole picture that you have if, in yeah, your head. Yeah, exactly.
3: I mean, you have this thing that's locked inside your head, so it could be the way that yeah. you express it or that you just haven't formed it enough. But, like, I I mean, I spent 10 years making a book about a disembodied leg, so... <laughs> I, you know, grain of salt but and and that was a book that like until I had copies I could sell at conventions I mean I made zero dollars off of it so not commercially viable Um, but there was just this voice that was telling me that this was a thing that I should, should do and that it was a story that deserved to be told and I mean I made this book in spite of all the logic yeah um, and in spite of all advice that I ever got <laughs> aside from you know a handful of people that looked at it and, and saw that same thing. So I, I don't know, I mean, I think you have to, um, you have to have a lot of passion and you kind of have to know who, who are, you are and what you have to say and what like what values that you have and can you bring those to bear in a project. And that, that's true for you know creator own stuff. As well as you know, when I choose what to what to work on or not work on with with DC Comics, so yeah. there's stuff that just it's it ain't the book for me, right? And mm-hmm. you know, you got to have the confidence in yourself to know that.
0: How about you, Chris? Um,
1: a lot of it is just sort of self reflection. Like ra- rather than you know, I can usually I feel get a good sense as to whether or not something's going to work. Basically, my when I say commercially viable, that doesn't mean oh this is gonna shoot to the top of the list or something. It just means that people aren't going to run screaming from it. Is sort of my, my main <laughs> criteria with it. Um, which sometimes I do have those. Uh, you know, I, I I tend to I, I keep a sketchbook uh, on me most of the time, and uh, you know I use it for drawing, but I also use it for my grocery lists and anything else, and that way I just sort of always have it on hand. And when I have an idea for something, I'll write it down, and most of them are gonna be awful. Um, but also a lot of them might be yield some grain of something. But 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 usually, if something seems like it could work, I can figure out a way to make it work. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's a a big part of things. And, and yeah, you know, Van talking about working with DC with for higher stuff. Uh, depending on the amount of leeway that the Whoever owns a particular franchise might give you. Um, any writer can can hopefully take take whatever project, however great or poor it is. Um, and if poor, find the the thing. Not necessarily the ray of light. It, maybe find it. the thing. Find the things about it that that make it special for you, and bring those to the surface. And I think that. That in comics, that's what you see a lot. And so you may see a big shift with a, a particular character, but a lot of times that shift isn't necessarily adding something new to the character or taking something away from the character. It's simply emphasizing a component that already existed for that character, that the, the writer, that that's the part that speaks to the writer. That's yep. the part that speaks to the artist, and they want to, to bring that to the surface.
2: Well, there's writing... For me, okay, I don't consider myself an artiste. I consider myself a craftsman at what I do, okay? Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't passages that I'm not really, really pleased with and that I don't, there aren't, do you remember uh, romancing the stone oh, yes. where she's finishing? is God, that's good, and she's out of Kleenex, okay? I have those moments every so often <laughs> while I'm writing. Um, but what makes it work isn't a flash of brilliance. It doesn't hurt, but what makes it work is staying with it, entering into the story yourself while you're telling it. Um, every single successful story is about the characters. And ultimately, what you have to do as the writer is you have to convince the audience to care about what happens to the characters you're writing about. That doesn't mean they have to like them. They can read it waiting to see when this SOB is going to get his. <laughs> okay? But they ha- there has to be something about what you've done that that pulls that pulls them in and because i am a print writer okay traditionally this is actually i think possibly going to change with some of the ebooks that are out uh, the ebook format is coming up i can't use the visual hook to pull you in i have to pull you in simply through the storytelling that i'm doing I have to get you to create the images yourself to understand where we're we're going. And I tell people, nobody has ever read a single book I've written. Not one. What they've done is they have read books that I've written from their starting point and their interpretation of what I wrote. And so every single book is different for every single reader. It's interactive to an extent that a lot of people don't realize even while they're reading the books. And I'm sure that's also true for for the graphics, but you guys have um, an advantage in that you can actually show them your See, visual I, concept. I
1: think of that as a disadvantage. You do? I mean, I, I really like it within... I, I, I love doing it, and I mm-hmm. love the medium, but I think, that, I think that it can be part of the thing that I love about reading is the, the huge amount of uh, diversity when it comes to any given person's interpretation of what a character might look so like, you're, you're, even when a character is very specifically described. In fact, in mm-hmm. those instances, more so than others, I think that the, the deviation of, of, of mental mm-hmm. pictures... Uh, stems from that, and I think that there's that's a lot of strength in that. Um, that.
2: That's interesting, because I think what I'm hearing you saying is that you feel that the, it, it forecloses options for the reader. It does, and so what I See, I'm, for, I'm thinking, boy, that would be really cool oh, to be well, able and, to show and, them. But aspects <laughs> of
1: that, that are, but I think that what we try to do in order to, to facilitate as much of that on the part of the reader is to to play the... And I, I think we're... we're 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 doing the opposite is in um uh sort of internalizing conflict and mm-hmm. and treating it almost more like a dramatization where we're not where the, the we have to depict through uh shot choices and, and uh character expressions and body language and staging um the things that you might be able to explicitly state or hint oh, yes. at in a novel. Yes. So so I feel like there there are elements where we, we can be a little more on the surface, but I think that in other ones, if we try to put that on the surface, it comes off as cheesy and not so good.
2: Well, and I do know that one huge advantage that uh, novelists have over movie makers is we have an absolutely unlimited special effects budget. Oh, yeah. And I can well, actually... Well, have that, too, which is nice. No, that's so, true. I
1: mean, time to draw is a but consideration. We, we
2: can actually put you inside the character's head yeah. from, the, from the viewpoint from the the, the character 's internal viewpoint, and that 's really hard to do in in a movie you guys are kind of splitting the difference yeah. almost between the two
3: yeah so it's it's basically like a spectrum of how how much imagination the, the reader or viewer uses so movies like movies aside from i mean they, they fill almost all of your senses aside from sense of smell mm-hmm. and touch obviously but um Movies are flooding flooding your senses. Your your imagination does not have to fill much of the gaps. Now, you actually do kind of start to imagine almost like what a scene smells like a little bit. So it's like your mind is filling yeah. in a little bit of the blanks. Yeah. And then uh, prose, you know, your imagination is filling in a ton of it. And so your, your imagination is really, really active. And then comics is kind of in the middle of those two. How do we get on that from the question? Um, anyway. <laughs> um, what, what,
2: so, okay, how about radio television movies okay it's kind of that same gradation yeah. yeah um one of the one of the
0: things that I think connects all three of you that I thought was interesting as well is that you're also all doing some sort of series work mm-hmm. where van is doing uh, d c comics work, which is a monthly uh process Chris, you have the Krogan's adventure series, and David, you have multiple series <laughs> that are all going. Um, in, In your various universes, what I've always wondered as a reader of all of those type of genres is, do you find that being in that series structure helps you grow ideas because you're in it so much? Or is it sometimes conflicting because, well, I have to write about this, like this is what I'm into right now, and I have a really good idea about a zombie planet that eats other planets but that doesn't fit into this book about a 12 year old you know yeah. uh what what do you guys find you know as far as having to be in that structure
1: i think it's a little of both i think that that i have many, when it comes to the historical stuff anytime i read uh a historical thing i don't necessarily have to worry about how i would frame it into a narrative because i've i've sort of got a built-in structure that i could uh I could pull that event, uh, dramatize it, change it a little bit, and, and, and use it to my own purposes. Um, but sometimes there are things, like I got really wanted to do something space opera-y um, uh, a few months ago, and I consoled myself with the fact that if I wanted to with the creeps, it's, it's sort of a nebulous enough concept, it's, you know, kid middle schoolers in a town full of monsters, yeah. Um, if I wanted the janitor to turn out to be a space alien and take <laughs> him up I could do spend one book doing you know sort of uh, yeah space fantasy if I wanted to um, and so so sometimes it's forcing a as long as there's a spooky element in play you know something aliens esque or, or uh, you know any of the other things that, that fall into that category yeah. um, I think that I could Potentially get away with it. Whether or not that's a wise move is another thing. But you know, uh, uh, going to going towards uh, like big two comics. You know, uh, uh, Frank Miller wanted to do crime comics, and so he turned Daredevil into a crime
3: comic. Um, and I think that there there are plenty of examples of, of people doing that sort of thing. Yeah. So the the monthly comics, um, it's just it's a very different thing than you know, working on creator own stuff, it's it's like I, I don't know, you never really actively sit around looking for ideas for creator own comics. Like they just they come to you yeah. know, as you go about your life and, and then you figure out whether you want to pursue it or not. And so it's it's not an active I need to generate ideas. Mm-hmm. Whereas you know I've I've been doing uh, two monthly series for the past year and that means that um you know twenty four times a year at least you know, maybe more if I'm doing, like, a bonus issue or an annual, um, I have to have a new idea. And, you know, that kind of, like, you're on the gun yeah. and you have to come up with an idea is just it's a totally different different way of of idea generation. That, and then there's an approach to it, and a lot of it is, um, like, figuring out stories, it's almost like uh, like logic puzzles. Yeah. If this, then this, and you you just you tease that stuff out, and it, it leads you in places. And sometimes you'll have some like crazy off the wall idea. This is like, oh, you know, here's this random thing that I can pour into it. But a lot of it's kind of figuring out this ongoing narrative and where it's leading. And so, like, you know, example, um, I took over Green Lantern Corps with issue 21 two, two years ago, and right before that point, uh, the, the Green Lantern John Stewart had started dating uh, this. This character, Fatality, who's a Star Sapphire. that I don't know if anyone knows. This, but she's the Star Sapphires are kind of, for whatever reason, they are, wear the color pink. So of course they're all women, um, <laughs> at least until I made one a man. Um, but they they're sort of like a flip side to the Green Lanterns. But the way that Fatality and like no one had addressed this, but so Jon Stewart's dating Fatality. The way that Fatality, like she used to be a villain, used to hate Jon Stewart. But she became a star sapphire because she was basically brainwashed. Like, no one addressed this. And I, this, I just approached it as like, okay, like, logically teasing this out, this woman has been brainwashed into loving someone that used to be her greatest enemy. That's pretty screwed up. <laughs> I think I need to do something with that. So I spent a year on this incredibly complicated plot, all leading to breaking up that relationship because it was built on lies. And it was something that a lot of readers, you know, like they very few people saw saw where that was going, but it was all through just like, okay, well this is the case, then if that's the case, then this is the case and so on and so on. Um and a lot of like weird deviations along the way. But I don't know, I I, I honestly like I don't think that my process for idea generation is that great because it's like you know, I just had DC ask me to take over a series recently. Um, and it was like I had one day to come up with the what you would it. do. And I ended up telling him, I was like, actually, like, I don't like that series, but I'm going to pitch you something new because it was just like out of the blue some random idea came to me, and I don't know how. I was like really, really sick at the time, too. <laughs> <laughs> it
2: good, wasn't like I had this, like, it. Working, <laughs> Fever dream. yeah, it
3: was just all of a sudden, you know, there it was. And, like, I wish that I could figure that out so that I could, like, put myself in the place. To bottle it. yeah Yeah. but it just but at the same time do you remember when we got
0: food poisoning from that Thai place last week we need to eat there again
1: well deadlines on that are are such a big big factor for me like if I I, I'll put I'll I'll ruminate on stuff for a while Mm -hmm. like I'll let it I'll let it filter and I feel like if you if you put all the components into your head and let it crock pot uh that helps and then then you know a Two days before you got to send it out, that's when you go to a coffee shop and with a notebook and you you figure out what the structure is going to be.
2: Yeah. Well, I'm um, I'm in a a, a different place. Um, I have um, I think this is correct that I currently have seven series ongoing, Um, and they're novels, and they are not on a se- my readership is not expecting an issue in a month okay and so if I if I and they know some of them are really pissed off about it but they know <laughs> that I have all these series going on and that therefore there may be a small delay in, in in the book that they want um and I've had people say you know you have to cut down on your number of series and I say okay fine which one would you like me to not write and they're like well none of them and I said see that's my problem um, but for me, I pretty much call the shots on where I'm going to go next. And one of the advantages of having that many series is that I can move between them so that I don't get into that grind situation on, oh, God, I have to have another Honor Harrington out. You know, I can I can do something else for a while. Um, I'd say that um, one thing that has been kind of touched on a little bit up here is what I call the logical consequences rule. Um, you were talking about how the story takes you places, and you know, that it's a, works a lot that way for me. As I develop the story, the characters and the situation grow and develop, and that tells me where I'm going next. But something that I think is a problem, uh, especially for some series writers, is. Continuity and logic maintaining continuity when you 're on Book 19 in a series uh, can get interesting, um, but even more important is what matters more to the reader is plausibility than possibility. if you can You can say, "Well, look, you know, they really were this stupid at Sedan during the Franco-Prussian War. And they're going to go, oh, no, you just made that up because you need a really stupid general, okay? So you have to – the reader has to be able to accept that what you're doing is plausible. That's that's critical to what you're doing. But another side of it is when you're structuring an idea, you need to consider the logical implications of the idea. You were talking about the brainwashing, okay? Um, Star Trek, Okay? I'm pretty sure they hadn't really thought through the logical implications of the transporter. Because they had to make it the most unreliable piece of technology in the galaxy <laughs> because otherwise they could have pretty much solved the problem every every episode by beaming the Okay, the whole episode with the Borg Cube, okay? I'm watching this and I'm tearing my hair out because they're they're beaming in and out and they're worried about the Borg uh uh, uh, their personal shields resetting on their phasers, you know, and everything. I'd have liked to seeing their personal shields reset against 15 kilos of antimatter. Okay?
3: That was so deep catalog. Yeah, I mean.
2: Uh, <laughs> uh, <you> know, <laughs> you know, I'm just saying. <laughs> you, know. well, you, you
0: brought up something uh, really interesting that I wanted to ask about as well because all of you deal with continuity, with your books. Chris's books are connected, obviously your series is connected, and Van not only has his own continuity that he's writing, but whatever other continuity the the publisher is using at that moment. And I think continuity kind of ties into research as well, because some things you want to research to be factual or accurate, and sometimes your research, I would think, is sort of your own continuity. Mm -hmm. Whether it's something that you've written before, or it's something that you want to be a part of the structure. Um, again, this is kind of, you know, way too open-ended a question, but do you find that sort of uh, tropes with your writing as a comfort, something you can fall back into and fall into to give you structure, or is it something that sort of binds, or is it both? You know, do you get tangled in it, or do you find it as, you know, this help? because obviously continuity... Yeah helped you with that one particular structure oh
3: it's i mean continuity is a word that i wish i could not (laughs) spend time thinking about i mean i read i don't know how many hundred issues of green lantern and green lantern core to prepare for writing the series um and i i kind of think of so there's a distinction between and this is purely in my mind so it might not exist elsewhere but um, there's a difference between like a, a standalone project that's your own thing. Like you do world building, and like you figure out what the world is, and you you puzzle that all out, and you kind of build this this universe and make its rules. And I think that's really important for every work to kind of have that. Like it has its own internal logic. Mm-hmm. Continuity is once a, a project or a series or whatever gets so big and has gone on for so long that there's all of this history. And making sense of the history and respecting all of the history yep. and that 's you know when you have a series that has you know a dozen plus books I mean yep. that 's getting to a point where there's serious continuity there to deal with like yep. at the start you were building, building
2: well did i did, I, well, it's, I, it's did I did to, I, I, to I did
3: readers to, okay. to to
1: not like in in your instance if you decided that you didn 't like something um, that that sort of throws that into the face of the the readers who have stuck with it, who've invested it. in it. Yeah,
2: yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I did an eighty-five thousand-word essay before I wrote the first Honor Harrington novel, in order to establish that framework and that continuity and so forth. And it's been revised here and there over the years. Um, and these days, um, I have a group uh, Bu nine. There are eight bureaus in the Royal Manticore and Navy, so they're Bu nine. Um, and they started as just a fan group, and now they are actually collaborating with me on on works and actually earning money doing it, which is good. Um, but uh, I was thinking, like we were talking about continuity, I'm working on the third volume in um, a parallel universes novel uh, uh, series. And you have two totally separate civilizations, neither of which is ours, living on the same planet. Okay. Think about the geographical place names. Because there's a Sharonian place name, there's an Arcanian place name, and there's our place name. And just keeping it all straight. Yeah. Um electronic files are a godsend because you've got the glossary and you can stick it all in there and just, you know, every every day or two you alphabetize it over again, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Um but um that actually is a much greater problem for me than when i 'm working in a fictitious world, one where i don 't have to worry about matching the real geography and so forth. The political structures are easy okay the 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 internal dynamic of the society is easy, but when you have certain points of of uh, of uh, contiguity with the real world that you can't violate you can't get away from that's where the research for me be, becomes becomes uh i won't say a problem but it becomes uh a m- it begins using up a major component of my creative time um, chris
0: Chris you have kind of both you know uh your uh, your adventure series uh crogan's is tied together in the framework of each story, mm-hmm. so you sort of are building that sort of family continuity for the frame of each story. Yeah. But you also have to do a ton of real world research that you try to be as accurate as you possibly can with. So you have you both have, to
1: deal with. Well, yeah, and the thing that I that I do um, that that sort of prevents it from being a problem. Every once in a while, it, it's a little bit of a problem, and I get I grouch at myself, but then you know you get over it. Um, is that I've got a, a long biography of sorts for each of the characters that I would use and anytime I find a new um, anytime I find a new historical period that I think is particularly interesting or especially could yield a good story that I think, oh, okay, so um, you know, the the uh, there's this, this siege in France in 1828 that I think would be a perfect mirror for the social situation of Casablanca in 1941. And so if I wanted to do a riff on Casablanca with Musketeers, i have a, a, a political, a little social framework in which to do that. Um, I'll put that into this big document. Um, and the thing is but that document is just for me, and it is always subject to change until something gets published. Yep. And what we we're talking about with the novels, one of the things that's really helpful that, that benefits me greatly in working in this style is that I don't have any characters that are internalizing dialogue or, or something like that where it says, you know, uh, where in, in just sort of building up the character's biography, I don't say any of their backstory. Um, right, there's no internal mor- yeah, monologue. If it comes out in dialogue, then it becomes, you know, canonical. Um, mm-hmm. And if it doesn't, then it doesn't. But also my, my thought is, while well, I'll adhere to my own... Uh, Chronology, my my thought is there are enough franchises and book series and things like that that have something in them that I feel departs from what the story's intent set out to be or should have been or something. Um, and so I just don't, in my mind, I don't count those parts. And so I don't insist that my readers do either, but I'm still going to write to them. So, um, so, so,
0: so what we might be saying is that uh, me as a longtime comic book reader... I'm seeing continuity in your series because you have reoccurring characters, but you're yeah. actually attempting to use those characters and keep it evergreen. So that's oh. that's what we talked about earlier. That's my interpretation yeah. Yeah. of well, what you're I, doing, even though that's not yeah, what you're. Intent- I have had
2: I have had people come up to me at cons and explain to me why one of my characters did something and realize that they're right, even yeah. though I hadn't thought consciously about I know the character I know what the character is going to do I haven't been through all the, the the steps as to why that character did what that character did I just knew that was what that character was going to do in that situation um, I killed a character um, a couple of books back that I thought I was going to have to ra- move to Montana and raise rabbits under an assumed name this was like Honor Harrington's personal armsman he'd been with her for like 15 years covered her back you know, the whole nine yards. Um, and I not only killed him, but his actual death is off stage. Okay? Um, and I tried over and over again to rewrite the book without killing him. Yeah. I did. Okay? And I, it just wouldn't work, and I didn't know why. Well, the reason is that he's killed in an attack on her homeworld, in which, like, over a million people are killed mainly by orbital debris deorbiting and landing in unfortunate places and honor harrington loses 98% of her entire family uh in this catastrophe all right but you've never met any of them the only members of her family you've actually met survive okay and so it was it was andrew's death because you knew how much he meant to her okay that allowed you to extrapolate from there to really grasp her grief over these people you'd never met right and that was why andrew had to die um and he died saving her infant uh infant son's life okay and so the the readers like okay he died doing what he would have chosen to die doing if he had to die right. okay um but um i didn't know Seriously, until I was into the copy edit process, all of a sudden it clicked. That was why I had been unable to write the book and have him come out the other side of it alive.
0: Now, I don't know if this, if this next bit will be necessarily directly up Chris's alley, but I know both of you have ties to it in that you've both um, co-written things with other people. How is that process like? Um, is, it, is it really about the individual person and how you get along creatively with them um, but I would imagine that uh, any time you have more than one person in a room, uh, a regular conversation can turn into an argument, especially when it's concerning creativity. How do you two guys find uh, working with somebody else? Because uh, not only, I mean, you've co- you have co-write co at times, but you also have an artist to deal with, and you've co-written at times. How is that idea process?
3: Um, so the, the co-writing, um, I've worked with Rob Venditti, who works with Valiant, and uh, we co-write The Flash together right now. Um, and I mean, it, it's honestly super easy because we've been friends for like eight or nine years. So, I mean, I, I consider Rob a brother. So um, I, I find it to be great. Um, and part of it's just this situation. But there's actually a lot of research about um, creative pairs. Mm-hmm. And so there's this, this idea that's very popular of like the lone creative genius. Um, but... What's really found is that everyone who's perceived as a lone creative genius actually has someone who's close to them that was kind of involved in their creative arc and their creative journey and was yeah. pushing them, whether they were rivals, whether they were friends, you know,
2: scientists, whatever. Whether they were sounding boards.
3: Yeah, so yep. everyone, everyone really has someone close to them that's pushed them. And, and, you know, the way that it typically works, like there was a, an article that Slate did, or a series of articles that Slate did a few years back on this, And they looked at recording uh, sessions that the Beatles did. And they looked at, like, particular songs and who was credited as the songwriter. And so it might be, like, Paul McCartney was credited as the writer on the song. But you actually listen to them in the studio as they are writing, like, actively writing the song. And what would happen is they'd be, like, one would play a little bit of music. And then the other would, you know, sing some little line. And the other would be like, oh, well, what if we did this and twist it in this way? And the other would come back, okay, we'll take that and then do this. And it's what you end up with is awesome it is just incredible. But like, neither of them would have reached that on their own. But it's yeah. also impossible. Without the whole... it's impossible to say who it was who actually came up with that. In yeah. a really good creative partnership, that stuff happens all the time. And, and with Flash, it's been really frequent where I can look back on an issue and I don't know whose idea it was.
0: How about you, David? How, how have you found the joint creative process well, as opposed I, to your solo? I
2: think I was just trying to count up. I think I've worked with, it's either seven or eight people collaboratively. Okay, and every collaboration is different in terms of how it's organized with those two people in, in the room. Um, if you look back at collaborative novels, uh, historically they were written by people who lived in the same house or at least the same street. Nowadays with uh, the internet, <laughs> yeah. uh, Chicago where uh, Eric Flint lives and Greenville where I live are the same house effectively in terms of, of working together because you can just throw the stuff back and forth. Um, generally speaking, the, the rule that I apply when I consider doing a collaboration is number one, do I think that I will enjoy working with the other person? uh number 2 does that person bring something to the story or do i bring something to the story working with him that wouldn't be there without that other person uh number you know number 3 is is what we're going to produce in the end be at least as good as what we would have produced individually uh and if the answer to all three of those questions is yes then you know i'm pretty much all up with doing it and Most of the collaborations that I've done have been either in my universe or in their universe. And the rule of thumb is whoever's universe it is, is the senior partner for that. It doesn't matter who's got more books out. It doesn't matter. What matters is this is his or her sandbox. Right. Okay. Uh, But when Steve White and I did Insurrection, our first novel, we split it up by characters. Okay, and he took the scenes in which his characters were viewpoint characters. I took the scenes in which mine were, and the other guy had veto rights over what one of my characters might have done in one of his scenes. I'd say, okay. no, no, Lehan wouldn't have done it that way, you know, or whatever. Uh, when Eric Flint and I write, uh, we divide it into I write the hardware side and the combat side, and he writes. The, the interaction and the skullduggery and espionage side of the books that we do together. So it, 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 there are different procedures, different processes, um, and there's not a one size fits all, even for two writers who have worked together before. Each, you may each find yourself. Each new just,
0: collaboration could be different. Yeah. Chris, um, as a cartoonist who is, who is incredibly self contained, mm-hmm. um, is that Completely by choice, or is that, or is it just hasn't come up?
1: It's pretty much by choice. Um, The 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 difficulty uh, in in that sense is that I have very strong opinions as to how I feel something is best, and um, and I don't really want to work with anybody who doesn't also have those opinions. And finding finding some basically, so so there's one person that I'm working with on a on a franchise. Monthly right now that is in sort of development hell is at, at the moment. Um, uh, but it's Joe Flood. Um, he's been he's he's predominantly a comic artist. He's worked on a number of books for First Second and a couple things for Image. Um, and he's absolutely fantastic. And the reason that I like working with him is that I he for one I respect him a great deal, and I think he respects me a great deal, and I think that's tantamount to a good working relationship. Yeah. Um, but the way that we approach it is not what I think has come to be the case with a lot of uh, things, which is that the writer is sort of the the creative guiding force, and then the artist is is executing that vision. Um, The way that I feel most comfortable in a writer-artist relationship is that the writer is the screenwriter, and the artist is the director. Um, And so whatever I give him, I trust his storytelling abilities and instincts and considerations enough that if he wants to deviate from uh, my pacing or the way, if he thinks that this dialogue that I've given could be condensed into this uh, shorter sequence or placed elsewhere, like, I trust his judgment on that. Um, Likewise, he comes, I help him with some design stuff and staging stuff. Um, uh, He'll, he'll, we'll work out story ideas together and so it becomes a very collaborative process Mm -hmm. and I think that anytime I've, I've done something where I've, and I have a couple of times for, for different like kids' projects and things like that where I'm working on an assembly line-style thing where I'm yeah. writing something. I, I almost inevitably feel like I have to approach it with no emotional investment whatsoever. I'm going to do my best from a craft standpoint, but if I don't detach myself, um, then I know that I'm going to get upset at things that, at decisions that have been made at any given stage, coloring, drawing, layout, whatever it might be. Um, and once that happens, then I it's harder for me to support the book, and so and I don't like feeling emotionally detached from a work because then I feel like I'm hacking it out.
0: Um, you don't want to be the guest on the Tonight Show that obviously does not like the movie they're contractually yeah, required to yeah That's it,
1: and and that doesn't and and you know there's there's something to be said for like a journeyman career where you're you're taking on uh, the, these these projects uh, because you're you're good at your craft, and it's not that I don't want to be good at my craft, but I also do feel like most of the projects that I do, in this age where, it, uh, you know, I call it the DVD culture, you know no, used to be you watch a sitcom from when you start watching the sitcom and now anything you do is accessible to anybody and so that being the case what I put out it has a lot more importance, or the decisions regarding what I put out uh, I think has a lot more importance than it would have had to me 15 years ago um, because I know that any one of them might be uh, tracked down by somebody who likes my stuff, or conversely, the window into my work. And if it if it doesn't reflect the the way that I think my storytelling should be done, then I think that it it hurts my future relationship with that reader.
0: Mm-hmm. Along that same line, thank you, David. Was it hard for you to let other people get your hands on some of your creations, or? Not really, because um, you've had other people write some books in yep. the uh, universes you've created. Yeah, well,
2: the, 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 I've got uh, six, I think, uh, anthologies in the honor um, all of which contain stories by authors other than me. Um, I'm not as comfortable with shared universes as some writers are. Eric Flint, for example, <laughs> loves them, but we tell him that's because he used to be uh, a Marxist uh, labor organizer. <laughs> Uh, you know, we call him Eric the Red at Bain. Um but um for me it's a matter of everybody going into the project understanding what the ground rules are when you go into the project, not somebody trying to change them. Part way through, not me trying to change them in my universe, not them trying to change it in in their universe, and for example, in the anthologies, my rule of thumb is: tell me what you want to do with the story. I will help you find a spot in the in the history of the of the of the storyline where this can be done. Um, if I just think it's a really bad idea, I'll tell you that you can go back and think about another one, but. That's it. Once, you have, once we've decided where it's going to go and that the basic idea is acceptable, all I'm doing is providing that continuity editor to make sure that they're not violating canon on technology or already established historical events. Yes. It's up to them to do the story that they want to do, and I wouldn't have invited them to be in the anthology if I didn't expect them to do a good job. Now, a couple of stories have been disappointments to me. Uh, they were not as good as I expected them to be. Overall, they have been at least as good as I expected them to be, and I'll settle for that 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 track record. Um, I, there is one other reason to do a collaboration, um, and that is if you have a story that you don't have time to tell by yourself. Um, Now, right this minute, I'm doing uh, a collaborative series with uh, Tim Zahn, Tom, and Tom Pope. It's set 300 years before Honor Harrington's time. And I really wanted to do the stories, but I really wanted them to have a different voice from the ones that people are used to in the Honor Harrington time frame. And Tim is a good friend, and I've always loved his, his writing. I think he's He's one of the best writers out there. Um, And he had done um, a short story for one of the anthologies that was right in the time window that I was looking at here. And Tom is like the main organizer at Bu9. So I said, look, I know from experience that it's hard to drop back 300 years and make the technology 300 years cruder and still have it working. Right. Okay, so I said I want you guys to to tell me where you think the technology should be at this time. And I want you guys within here's the framework of the story that we need to tell. I want you guys to tell it. And I will be available anytime that you need me, you know, to come, you know, be the parachute mom swooping in here to say, "Okay, look, here's the problem you've got." because of the continuity issue or whatever, and here's possibly one way to solve it. But by and large, I want you guys to write it because I don't want it to be me telling this story. And it's the first time that I've done that. Um, And I am very, very, very pleased with how the first two volumes have. What was going to be a standalone novel, Bain, has now turned into an open-ended series. That's how Bain feels about it. Um, and the first volume only has Tim's, Zahn's name and my name on it. It has my name on it because it's Honorverse. And it doesn't have Tom on it because we didn't want people to think it was another anthology. Right. We wanted them to recognize it as a collaboration. So there's an author's note like right inside the front covers. There should be a third name on the cover, and here's who it is. And on the second and the third books, it'll have all three of us on it. Um, but I'm, I'm very pleased. But that, like I say, that's, a, that's another reason to do a collaboration. Um, And in something like the Honorverse, which covers 2,000 years of history, you know, filled in between the gaps and whatnot, um, and has at least eight major interstellar powers involved, um, there's a whole lot of story to tell in there that there's no way in the world I am ever going to have time to tell um, and this is one way to get some well, of it. That, that really kind of brings up something help.
0: interesting. You know, we'll, we'll close up in just a minute here, but you know, you have creator own properties, and Chris, obviously, you do. Could you foresee um, allowing somebody else to tell a Krogan's adventure in your series, or could you imagine handing Pinocchio over to somebody else?
3: Honestly, the probably the biggest roadblock to that, I mean, I haven't considered it, and that's not to say that like I... I Want to control it so much, right. or it's so sacred to me. But um, creator-owned comics—it's—it's it's tough to make a living. Um, it's just—it's there's not a ton of money in it at the start. Like you can get there, um, but it's really, really um, tough for a lot of it. So there's not necessarily all that much money to begin with, and then every additional person that you have involved Splits the income. is splitting it up. So I've had writers who, and people who I really liked who want to work with me on something, whether it's part of a universe I've worked in or whether it's some new project, and I've just said, and I've had people come to me with their own new ideas, like, oh, I'd love to work with you. I'd say, just do it on your own. Like, you don't need me. Yeah, I don't really help you out in any way. And, like, all I'm going to do is, you know, we'll split up the income, and nobody will really make anything discernible off of it, uh, so, which is like a pretty crass answer I guess
0: but I mean <laughs> like Chris I, I remember one of the first times that we met you had a really large map out plan for tons of crogans yeah, that I you mean, wanted to tell a story for is there any sort of consideration my, to maybe somebody else will do one
1: not in an official capacity but I also would not be adverse to kind of like the the way that things like Sherlock Holmes are handled and things like that where um Somebody else might do a Sherlock Holmes story, but, but everybody's like, oh, okay, that's Brian's Sherlock Holmes story. That's Van Sherlock Holmes story. It's not uh, part of this canonical accepted Sherlock Holmes thing. Um, I, I wouldn't have an issue with that. Like if somebody had a, you know, I can't imagine that happening anytime soon, but if a kid grows up with it and, you know, becomes a, a novelist or a cartoonist or whatever else, and wants to do a story based on you know with one of the characters you know whatever is in vogue at the time deconstructing it or seeing what they were like as a kid or whatever it might be. Um, I I feel like that's part of their uh, cultural you know and there's a lot of debate about this in terms of you know how where where does uh, copyright law start, start to infringe on. Uh, cultural experience cultural experience and things like that but but in general i i don't see having a problem with it, but I also don't see and, and you're not seeking it uh, but i'm I'm not going to do it myself I got you. um yeah. i don't think there's a,
0: always you know you never know but well, i'll yeah. get my picture any yeah. <laughs> yeah um before we wrap it, does anybody have any questions? yes, sir.
1: It's important I think um, I especially with comics which are tough to edit after the fact after you've drawn them uh, uh, but I I'll work out a really tight outline and then I'll deviate from it wildly um, it, while actually executing the work because I feel like that's when the characters start to tell you things and generally speaking you end up in the same last act but the way you get there. Um, kind of works. I'll I'll write up about a 12-page outline for every 200 pages of book that I do and that usually uh, helps me out pretty good. I I have to be tighter with it with books that have a fixed page count. So like a creep series has to be between 120 and 122 pages or 124 pages. Um so I have to be a little tighter with that than the Krogans where I could could be a little more rambly if I permitted myself.
2: Um for the first 14 Honor Harrington novels, there were no outlines. Um, I did my 80,000-word my essay at the beginning, and I knew where the series was going to begin, and I knew who the main players in it were, and I knew where it was going to end. And aside from that, I was writing it to find out how it got there. Um, now I'm at a point where I have events going on in widely separated spaces, and there's a delay of weeks in communication between them. And now I have to outline. Well, I don't really outline. What I do is timeline so that I know when these events are happening in relationship to one another, and I just enter them into the timeline as I do them rather than outlining um, as I go along. Um, I get a lot closer to outlining in a collaboration than I do in a solo because you and your collaborator have to have kind of the same roadmap. Unless you want to do like um, – Robert Silverberg and uh, Roger Zelazny and Fred Saberhagen did a three-party collaboration in which the job of each of them was at the end of the chapter that he had done to have the hero in an absolute death trap there was no way out of, and then the other author had to get him out of it in the next chapter. Okay, Uh, But by and large, um, I want to know where the story is going to begin, and I want to know where this story is going to end, all right? And I find out what happens in the middle when, when I write it.
3: Um, I'm a big believer that story is structured. Um, I mean, I, I think that just, like, that's the definition of story is it's stuff that's been turned into a structure. So I I think that structuring is really, really helpful. And again, like I'm just speaking for myself in my own process, but... Um, I actually have a, a template for every story that I write, whether it's an arc of a comic book series, whether it's a standalone <coughs> thing, whether it's a screenplay, um, and it has a list. I mean, it starts out with just <laughs> and I, I got <laughs> uh, questions and archetypes, and, and like taking the basic story structure, and am I following that? If I'm deviating from it, am I deviating for a reason? Um, am I hitting everything? Like, are there? It's basically like a stress test. It's like blueprints for a building, uh, because you know, like an architect could just start building story after story after story, and like each story might independently be cool, but then you like who, who knows necessarily where it, where it goes? And this is again just how how mm-hmm. I think about it. So, um, and I also like I want to. I, I think that there's a way to like refine a process. So that, like, if you have a good process, the story will be good. Um, and I, I want to be really efficient and spend as little time as possible rewriting. Mm-hmm. Now, that said, I still make a lot of discoveries along the way. And, like, I showed you a screenshot of an outline earlier that was all scribbled up. Like, I, I definitely changed stuff along the way. But I want to be able to write efficiently. And, I mean, I, I find that, like, what I do is it's not that it's not that I don't have that you know, sort of like fun exploration aspect of writing, mm-hmm. I just move it earlier. I do that independently of the writing so that I kind of because scripting comics especially, it's not like prose. No, you you it's have to so, get
2: you're tight. You're very tight on what you can yeah, do. Yeah, so it's
3: a lot of like knocking yep. knocking stuff out and just like basic panel description that's an instruction
2: letter mm-hmm. to an artist. It's
3: not yep. it's not prose. No, I,
2: I can I can fully understand that. And I will I will say this um the storyline grows um naturally for me as i'm going along but i am i'm a firm believer that if if the musket's going to be fired okay if it's going to be over the over the mantelpiece then you have to fire it somewhere in the course of the, of, of the story. And so people, may, yeah, people may have to wait four volumes before they find out what it's there for. In uh, Mutineer's Moon, I knew that in the second book, the good guys were going to have to deal with a fleet of a million-plus invading starships. And they weren't going to have anywhere <laughs> near a million ships to do it with. Um, but, it, the, but they were going to use uh, the, uh, the drives of their starships to induce a nova in in a star after sucking the invasion fleet into the star system. So in the very first, uh, like, two pages of the first book, I had a reference to the fact that the starship that winds up shipwrecked in our star system, that if its drive had gone unstable just a little further in, the sun could have gone nova. And then, boom, I just left it there until all of a sudden in book two, when the reader's like, well, how's he going to get out of this one? I dusted off that. Yeah, here's. I told you right here is how we're going to do it. Okay. Now you can do some of that by going back and saying, "Oh boy, I'm really going to need that. I better go back and put it in." But in a series, you know, you may find out that you need it four books down down the road, and you didn't think about it earlier. And so I do do a lot when I'm setting it up, even though I'm not outlining. I have a lot of. I guess bullet points mm-hmm. of this has to be provided in the early part of the, of the of the story. there's a uh, Honor Harrington is genetically enhanced for a heavy grab environment. Uh, and among other things, this means she has a metabolism that really burns burns food. And all the way through, she's drinking hot chocolate instead of coffee, you know. And as she's at one point, she's eating peach cobbler and washing it down with hot chocolate, you know. And I haven't told the reader, you know, about this part of her metabolism. It hasn't been germane yet, But there's a passage where their best friend, when her best friend says, if I ate like you do, I'd look like a pre-space blimp. And Honor says, nonsense. Some of us are just blessed with an act of metabolism that allows us to enjoy the finer things in life. Okay? All right. It's there. That's like in book three. But it's not until like book eight or nine that the fact that her metabolism works this way really becomes germane to what's happening to the storyline. But I put it in there. Even though you weren't expecting it to come along and, and bite her the way that it does... It was in there, you just didn't notice it at the time. Sort of. No
0: matter how, no matter how you decide your outline is or isn't going to be, as a storyteller, you all know that you can't build a house starting on the second floor. Yeah. Well, you can
2: try. but <laughs>
0: Do we have any other questions before we close it up? I,
1: I actually probably need to get back to my table because I I have a sign up saying I was going to be.
0: I got you. But if anybody has something for me specifically, like they're welcome to. Well, let's just go ahead and close it up because we only have about 45 minutes left to con anyway. So thank you, everybody, for coming. Thanks, guys. Thank you.